Hi, I'm your host, Connor Byrne, and welcome back to That's What I Call Marketing, the podcast where you will hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique stories. This episode is in partnership with the marketing magazine, the leading marketing, advertising, and media publication. And today I'm meeting former marketer of the year, Loretta Dignam. Loretta spent her marketing career working with incredible brands and marketing organizations like Mars, Diageo, Kerry Foods, Jacobs Fruitfield, and now she's at the Menopause Hub, which she founded. We chat about the importance of learning about process, tasting pet food for breakfast, launching a pasta sauce when the category didn't even exist, and making tough calls when you were handed a portfolio of underperforming brands. And we talk about menopause and what led Loretta to set up the Menopause Hub and what she will achieve. Loretta, thanks a million for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've done a bit of an intro and, um, you know, obviously kind of you've had some incredible brands that you've worked on. I'd love to just start with going maybe right back. You helped launch an iconic brand, actually, the now I think pretty iconic brand, the Sheba brand for cat food for people who don't know. Yeah, um, I worked, uh, I was recruited by Mars um, after I did my master's degree in UCD in marketing and international marketing. And I was recruited as part of the milk round. And only two of us were recruited. And one was sent to work in the Mars um, offices and I was sent to work in the pet food um, division. And so um, after about a year and a half in sales on the on the road, I went into the marketing department and I was like, you know, the most junior person there. But the boss I had was launching um, Sheba at the time. And basically, um, it was positioned as um, a brand of super premium uh, cat food for cat owners and cat lovers. And it was a fascinating launch. Um, oh, huge budget spent on it. We went down mm-hmm. to London. We shot the advertising. It was it was an incredible. So, you know, they say you should never work with um, animals and children. And <laughs> um, it was it was like that. But it was incredible. And um, what a fabulous I mean, based on on an insight that um, that uh, cat owners are like in love with their cats. They'll do anything for the cats. And what they'd found through research was that cat owners um, who sort of shunned the, the Whiskers brand and others like that and the sort of mass market brands were actually cooking special food for their for their cats so special fish or special chicken and they were cooking every day for their cats and and preparing the meal and so on so on so the insight they took from that was there's a market here for a super premium product with almost human-like um content and presentation and meat and chunks and all that kind of thing so that was how the brand was born and then sheba was one of the names that was researched and obviously the mars family owned the brand name and so on. So that was the launch. So super premium and very exotic uh, names, uh, recipes, uh, presentation. It was presented in the advertising with, you know, um, uh, a sprig of um, of herbs on the top. That's right. Yes. And yeah, the chunks were, you know, it was it was it was less, shall we say, um, processed. Yeah. Than, um, say, Whiskers, the, the mass market brand. And there were chunks and, um, you know, it was like real liver pieces, real lung and so on. So we used to taste that in oh. the factory every morning um, as part of our um, quality checks. Oh. <laughs> yes. I've eaten dog food and cat food in my time every day <laughs> at uh, 8.30 a.m. Oh, wow. <laughs> the things we do. 
Well, what's really interesting about that is like that, you know, really premium uh, brand, but the pricing, so premium pricing and how, yeah. you know, brand positioning uh, and advertising communications can allow you, you know, get to that premium pricing. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, the key thing is taking an insight is looking at what consumers are doing already and seeing how you can fill that gap better. Um, and uh, so, yes, it pushed out the market and people couldn't believe it because it was nearly more expensive than human food right. uh, per kilo, you know, uh, human meat or whatever. And so they did the very similar thing in the pet food world and they launched Caesar. Yeah. Uh, so they did the exact same in the dog food business. And, and launched a Caesar. It was originally, originally called Mr. Dog. Okay. Um, but yeah, but it was known as Cesar in, on the continent. So eventually they, you know, they, they morphed the names. Mr. Dog probably isn't as, as, um, uh, didn't roll off the tongue in quite yeah. the same way. Yes. But it was the same. It was taking exactly the same insight, um, and, and putting it in there. And the other thing I was involved in actually was there was another thing, which is that when you look at, at human behavior in relation to cats and dogs, in terms of cats, you know, the way people say, oh, give the cat some milk or the cat has mm. got the cream and those sort of things. Well, I was given, um, well, this project was given to various different managers, um, to check out about a cat milk. So to research oh. this as a product. And each manager was going like, well, I'm not doing that. So they kept passing it down the line until they got to me. There was nowhere else for me to pass it to because I was the most junior. So I actually did the research on um, on Whiskers cat milk. Oh. And um, yeah. And what I found out is that cats are actually lactose intolerant. So um, yes. Stop. So actually when we launched the product, yes, when we launched the product, and I did focus groups all around, um, all around um, Southeast England, actually. With cats? No, and, and <laughs> with their owners, with their owners. <laughs> but uh, and you may as well be talking to the cats, but um, yes, and um, yeah, and then um, I remember at the time there was uh, there wasn't uh, the appetite, if you excuse the pun, to go with it at the time. But subsequently, they took out all the research and then they launched Chris's Cat Milk. So I'm sure my my work is somewhere there yeah. um, uh, behind that launch. That's phenomenal. And one of the things actually with, when you think about Sheba and Caesar as well, it, like they've remained really consistent through the years yeah. in terms of like, you know, their, their advertising, but their positioning, you know, everything like, which is phenomenal to think, you know, yeah. for so long they have remained as consistent. And obviously it's because it's working and, and it makes, makes sense for them just to kind of refresh the creative. So it looks from today. But, you know, I, I, I think I see a Sheba ad. You know, now and it feels like it's the sheet, you know, it's a sheet yeah, 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 yeah. I think there's that. I think they brought, you know, new new flavors in. They changed the packaging over time sometimes. Yeah. And they put some in pouches, so they extended the range. So they've continuously brought um, innovation to the yeah. marketplace. And that's what consumers want. And um, because it, see, it shows that the brand is moving on. Um, and it's taking, once again, those kind of insights. You know, so they would be talking to um, even people who were who are rejectors of Sheba to find out why yeah. they don't buy into Sheba, and then looking to see how they can um, fill that marketplace. But yeah, it's about um, building enduring brands that can remain um, contemporary and relevant. That is the key. That is the key. Yeah. Speaking then of enduring brands, you were also lo- involved in launching a whole new product category. With Dolmios in, in Ireland. Oh, so Dolmios, yeah. the pasta sauce. 
Yeah, um, it's it's um, it's gas because it was back in I think nineteen eighty nine we launched it. Would you believe? Yeah. So obviously, you know, I'm ancient, and um, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we launched it when spaghetti bolognese was exotic. Yes. So um, you know, we had to actually explain to people what spaghetti bolognese was. Now nowadays, it's one of those meals that you rustle up, and yeah. you know, it's an everyday staple type thing. You know. We had to explain to people about um, about launch about what what the product was. So it was a brand new product, brand new concept, and the insight came from. I remember being in focus groups again with women, and you know they used to say the most difficult part of being you know a housekeeper and would have been called a housewife then, yeah. a housekeeper or you know um, that is that um, is what we have for dinner today. Mm-hmm. And what they'd tell us is that they'd, um, you know, they'd lean over to the husband in bed in the morning and they'd say, you know, what do you want for dinner tonight? And they'd go, geez, I haven't even had my breakfast. <laughs> I can't think that far ahead, right? And then the, the and this is very, st- you know, woman at home, man, man I was working yeah, back yeah. in 1989. And the woman would say, um, you know, come go along during the day and she'd take the kids to school and everything. And all of a sudden then she'd go, um, geez, what I make for the dinner? And then she'd make the dinner. And when the husband would come in for the dinner and the kids, they'd all go, oh, not that again. Oh, yeah. And so she, she was saying, like, you're down if you do and you're down if you don't. So they're always looking for ideas. Yeah. They're always looking for things. And obviously, you know, time pressure was becoming a thing. And um, they were looking for quick, easy recipes that they could present almost as their own. So some degree of help involved, but not over-processed. And Don Mio fitted this category and it was, you know, seen as exotic and sexy and so on and so on. So then we, um, we did that. But we, the biggest, um, problem we actually had, the advertising was very good and everything like that, but actually was to get people to sample the product. Okay. And so that was at the time when there was in-store sampling. Yes. Yeah. And the only things that. that you could, yeah, we all did on a Friday <laughs> evening. Yeah. yeah. And you go around the stores. Yeah. But at the time, the only things that they sampled in store were either cold products or sausages and rashers. And yes. that was it. So I wanted to cook meat um, to make bolognese and whatever. And people said, no, it can't be done, it can't be done. So anyway, I put the, the challenge to, um, I think, the various different agencies that were working with the CPM, different companies. And we ended up cooking the meat in store and um, and then putting uh, on little grill pans and allowing people to sample it. And it was sampling, actually, that was in tandem with the advertising and, and the promotional content in store that actually, you know, built the brand. And I remember, um, because I think as marketers um, and as salespeople and so on, we get bored very quickly with things. Mm. So um, when I used to put a roll out the marketing plan for the year at our annual conference and so on, the salespeople go, I'm not that sampling again. And I'd be like, well, actually, the number of people who've tasted it, um, you know, is much less than you might think. And we need to keep going with this as a program. And that was one of the things that built the brand and was getting it into people's mouths and whatever. And we'd used recipe leaflets and... Oh, we tried to do everything with it and we made, you know, turkey Dalmio recipes at Christmas and you name it, you yeah. know, we, we made uh, Dalmio relevant in, in some meal and recipe format. And I, I think you're, I love that point about we, we kind of get bored of it, you know, within marketing or sales, right? Because we're yeah. living it every absolutely. day. Absolutely. But our consumers aren't. No, absolutely not. And they're presented, and this is why I always believe that you need to put, step yourself back and put yourself in the shoes of the consumer all the time, or the customer. Because at the end of the day, these women were telling us the insight was, I need ideas and I need different recipes. Um, and therefore, their lives are mad busy, mm. you know? And um, so what we see and what they see, and even as I now don't work on those brands and I go into the stores, 
And, you know, do I see some of the products that come out? No, I don't. Because like times of the essence, I know what I want. I have a shopping list around the store. And it's only when I browse with time that I see see innovation and stuff, you know. Yeah, I I think I still think that the insight is still probably true to this day in terms of help. There's lots more help out there in like cookery shows and books and everything. But like I sit down with my kids in this house every like Thursday, Friday, before we do the weekly shopping list going, right, what are we having for dinner next week? <laughs> like, they're like, what? <laughs> like, yes. It's, it's just different. It's like me to them versus a wife and husband. But yes. like, it's, it's still the same inside. And it's it like, is. Oh, I need help. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you want them to go, oh my God, that's an amazing dish. Thank yeah. you. And that's all, that's, you know, you just want some acknowledgement for, for, you know, doing some of the, the work at home. Really, yes. You know? Yeah. And it's not um, the, and, this yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah. So this was like a helper. For, for whoever was making the meals, a meal helper type of thing, you know. Now, they've actually reformulated the recipes over the years and they've taken out all the things that aren't, because I couldn't eat Don for years because I was tasting it all the time. Uh, but they reformulated the recipe and took out a lot of things and it's all natural now. Yeah. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful product, like wonderful, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, I used to make deadly lasagnas with um, their white sauce and the red yeah. sauce. Yeah. And, and again, it's a it's a brand that has you know like stand at the test of time. You know what I mean? It it, yeah. it has it's you know been consistent around kind of the idea of family and coming together as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's taking that whole I suppose Italian concept of you know we're sitting down to the table and big family. It's all fun and laughter, and yet it's healthy Mediterranean food. Yeah, and so on, and it's bringing it on. And I suppose there are similarities in the Irish family, the Italian family, and so on. So yes, it's and they they've also and um, after I um was was no longer working on Mars, they brought out pouches. They were interested. Mm. They're actually probably the same pouches as the dog food, (laughs) you know, the same technology. So they brought out pouches and meals for one. And then they used, you know, the little Sheba pots, the little pots. Yeah. It was once in, but those, you know, peel pots. So they, they took the technology, they took the packaging and the technology from different areas of the business and sort of applied it in different areas. And then they, you know, and each time, I suppose, the price per kilo, that or the revenue per kilo um, went up. And so they were able to, you know, kind of increase the profit margin and um, by, by launching more premium or more single serve or whatever yeah. packs. Incredible that the innovation and, you know, but it's crossing across from yeah. pet food to consumer. You know, they're yeah. seeing these things like yeah. it's been an incredibly creative place to work. Yeah. I mean, I think um, at the end of the day, that was where I learned most about understanding the consumer, which has stood with me um, all along. And it was about. You know, research was really, really important, whether it was quant or qual. And um, it was, you know, getting inside the mind of the consumer. They were doing anthropomorphic studies at that time and so on. So really, and one of the, the values of Mars was, you know, the consumer is our boss and value right. for money is our goal. So that was one of the, the values of Mars. And so the consumer was really at the heart of it. And that was back in, you know, the seven, like obviously they've been around a long time, but in my career, it was in the, the 80s. Um, and I suppose it brought to life everything I learned sort of at university at that this is really what it is. And so, yeah, I think um, I think some of the things I learned there were absolutely um, fantastic and um, brilliant uh, skills and processes and approaches that, 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 you know, stayed with me and still do to this day, actually. I, I love that consumer is the boss because that just grounds you, doesn't it? In yeah. The decision you're making, why are you making it? Um, in, I work at Indeed and we actually have um, 
in all of our offices, we have an orange chair and the orange chair is to represent the job seeker who we believe it's our mission to help job seekers, you know, yeah. find and connect to great, great opportunities. And in every room, there's an orange chair. And the idea is to try pull you back. And if you're making a decision, yeah, is it the right decision? Is this going to help job seekers? And, you yeah. know. I, yeah. you know, you have to pull yourself in to remind yourself that that's what the orange yeah, chair is there for. because it's so easy to get caught up in, you know, the processes of the business and, uh, you know, filling out things or oh, yeah. generating forecasts or whatever it is. But it's very easy to get pulled up in, into all of that and get carried away with it. And also, I think, to get carried away with your own ego in a sense of, you know, every new, we used to joke and say every new brand manager comes in wants to change the packaging and the advertising. Yeah. You know, yeah. and they all cost a fortune. Yeah. Um, but actually, you know, you look at it and you go, you know, is that fit for purpose? What does the consumer think, et cetera? And actually, you know, it may not be necessary, but the, the marketer wants to make their stamp. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. you know, it's not always necessary. Yeah. Sometimes the stamp is to say, I've looked at this and yeah. everything is great. Yeah, <laughs> let's absolutely. Keep, let's keep doing more let's of it. Let's keep doing more of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah which yeah. is brilliant. Um, you went to Diageo and when you went to Diageo, they handed you a portfolio of brands that at the time weren't exactly the the stars. <laughs> so the likes of Smithicks, Harp, Kilkenny, Hudson Blue. Um I, I guess, did you know going in that was going to be the portfolio you got? <laughs> well, actually, what happened is I was living in Sweden. So I moved with Mars to Sweden for about four years. And um, I was uh, responsible for their confectionery business and okay. their food business. And that was an amazing experience and really interesting. And um, so then after those four years, I wanted to come back to Ireland. I had a little boy at that stage and um, who's now grown man. And um, I wanted to come back to Ireland. And um, so I kind of picked out the companies I wanted to work for. One was ESAP, did you found, but I didn't okay. get it out. I, I got rejected. And the other one was uh, Guinness, which was then becoming Diageo, if you like. And um, so the portfolio that was offered to me, I knew in advance. And I remember ringing um, a guy called Mark Mortel, you might know in, in the marketing circles, and saying to Mark, what do you think he'd worked there before? And he said, Loretta, the only way is up. So I decided <laughs> I'd take the job. <laughs> Be my foot in the door. Yeah. So yes, it was really um, a, a portfolio of brands that were all um, intertwined. To be honest, they would if you're doing your BCG analysis, they were, uh, you know, the the dogs or the problem <laughs> children or whatever. <laughs> so yes, that was my that was my bag. But I I you know went at it wholeheartedly as I always do. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so we, we uh, over the time, once I got an understanding of the brand, the dynamics, the consumer, the consumer metrics and so on, I sort of said, right, you know, Hudson Blue was kind of a lost cause at that stage because, you know, um, Guinness had tried to get into the to the cider market for years. And I don't know whether, you know, Irish tastes weren't ready for it when you look at the types yeah. of cider that's out there now, but it 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 wasn't going to fly and maybe the positioning and so on. So it was a bit like, well, let's, you know, um, let's take, remove that from the, uh, from the portfolio. Um, then, um, the other one was, um, Harp, Harpic. Uh, but you know, the Harp brand is a great little brand mm. and it's the number one in, in North Ireland. Yes. It was a number one. I in remember Northern. that. So, um, and in pockets around the country, it did really, really well. So I think it was really about, you know, maximizing its, um, it's 
position in where it was already strong and in the rest of the, the place there was no way to bring it back because there was um, a very bad association that you know harpic and all this kind of thing but actually in blind taste tests it did really really well yeah um but it was more about the brand and whatever and i suppose what had happened in the marketplace and um, so what we did was we capitalized on its successes where it was um, and and um, the other brand then was was Kilkenny and Kilkenny had been launched because uh, Caffrey's had come out with That's their right. um yeah. yeah with their nitrogenated ale or whatever and um it hadn't been so Kilkenny wasn't doing that well so I agreed that I would give it a go at a sort of a relaunch and try to reposition it or whatever and I set out you know trial and repeat purchase metrics um and after about uh, I suppose it was about you know three four months. Uh, the trial was great, but the repeat purchase wasn't. So I went back to the business and I said, look, guys, this isn't delivering. The, the consumers don't want it. They, right. they do either they don't like the taste or they, they just don't want it. It's a different market than the UK. So I recommend to the business that we keep Kilkenny as a tourist brand in some particular areas okay. and take the marketing money. And it, the budget at the time was £3 million pounds okay. wow. for just the marketing. Um, so let's take that money back and put it into our number one folks at the time, which is Guinness. So I literally went back with my recommendation. Uh, that was very hard to do to oh, say, look, yeah. yeah, the plan I've put in place and all the work that we've done is actually not going to not going to deliver because the metrics aren't there. Um, and so that's what we did. And we repositioned it then as a, as a tourist brand. And I think it's still around. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It does particularly well in, in particular areas and certain types of bars and so on. And then the, the diamond in the rough was actually Smithwick's. So Smithwick's had been declined for about 13 years and we looked at that and we looked at what was happening with the brand and we spoke to consumers. I went to so many focus groups. I tasted so many samples of Smithwick's at 8 o'clock and 8 o'clock in the, mor- in the morning. Um, uh, here's a tip. Don't brush your teeth in the morning and then drink Smithwick's. Um, but what we found out was that um, the consumers felt that they weren't loved anymore. They were being slagged um, by particularly Guinness drinkers around their choice of beer. Oh. Uh, they thought the quality of the beer had gone down dramatically. But yet it had a great role because it had a lower ABV so they could drink it, say, you know, over an evening or at a wedding or for a long day or whatever. Um, um, and secondly, it was easy drinking. So it was easier to drink than Guinness. Guinness was seen as more challenging drink. Um, and uh, so... There was a nugget of something in there, um, but the product was was seen as crap. And even other drinkers used to laugh at them for drinking like dishwater. Okay. So what we did is we relaunched it and we got a new hop that made the, the head last longer. Okay. So gave it a better head, you know, with a head that lasts to the bottom of the glass was the was the um, the kind of uh, the strap line around the, the work we did in the pubs. And then the other thing we did was... Um, we set about um, cleaning the lines of the so that when the product actually came through the, the pipes um, in the pubs, and um, it was um, much better quality, uh, tasted better, and so on. And then we put a whole piece of um, advertising together because we knew that it was um, uh, the the advertising was working, um, and we put that whole campaign together. Um, and actually, the brand grew for the first time. And because the brand was highly profitable, um, it generated extra profit that could go back into the Guinness brand. But that was the forerunner. That pipe cleaning, if you like, the yeah. clean lines, was actually the forerunner of the um, of the Guinness quality program. Okay. Because they saw what 
was happening to Smithix and they took that and applied that to the Guinness wow. brand and then put the, the vans on the road. Yeah, yeah. So on and so on because Guinness had um, cleaned the lines prior to that and then after a while they'd sort of outsourced it and the um, it, it, they weren't as clean as they should have been. So that was a whole thing around um, around the Smithix brand um, and it grew for the first time as I said and um, it, was, it was a fantastic feeling to yeah. take a brand that had been in decline. Now over the years it's gone a whole load of different places trying to be modern, trying to be whatever. I don't know. I, I don't know where, where the brand is at now. But we had some great success with that. That's incredible. And I love, I mean, the, I guess the bravery of the decision around Kilkenny yeah. is, is phenomenal. To be. Yeah, and that broke my brand manager's heart. Yeah, I can imagine. It's really sad. Yeah. And also, you know, you having to go to your bosses and say, we this isn't going to work. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a tough thing to do. And, you know, and, and say, take the money and put it over, over here to the, to the golden child. <laughs> that's not easy. But what I used to um, always say to the, the teams that worked with me is I used to say, you know, guys, or guys, girls, you know, you need to treat um, this money as if it was your own. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, would you spend your money on this? You know, and you know, if I could look myself in the mirror and say, yes, I would, then that's fine. But in cases I couldn't. So I'm like, you know, if this was my money, would I do it? And the answer was no, I couldn't justify it. So actually that was seen by the management and the, you know, the executive, whatever, as a very brave, brave thing to do as well. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. Which probably then gave you maybe and the team more capital in terms of mm. here's, we, you know, we think this exactly. is right now because then they're going to yeah. believe that you're, you're, you're smart. But, Thinkers. <laughs> but then I got to move on to the sexier brands of Budweiser and Carlsberg and a few <laughs> others. But there you go. So Budweiser was around the time of, uh, was it around the time of the What's Up campaign? Yeah, I launched oh, that. Amazing. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> <laughs> it's still, it's still like today resonates. Right? Well, WhatsApp isn't any much yeah, different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, but yeah, Budweiser was like at the was kind of at the at the, the peak of its of its success and everything. And like that was a brand where, you know, it just everything was going, all the metrics, everything was in the right direction. It was just a matter of keeping on steering it. You know, but then it, you know, yeah. at its peak and, and competition moved in and you know, consumers can be fickle, you know. Definitely, definitely. And then Carlsberg Oh, know, lovely brand. Probably, you know, yeah. um yeah. Yeah. Some amazing advertising. I don't Fabulous. know which. Yeah, I, Fabulous. I, what, what are the ones um, you one worked on? One of the ones on? was um, uh, if Carlsberg could do football matches and if Carlsberg did some of those, you know, so it was, it was, it was absolutely fabulous. Beautiful brand. Um, I guess the key thing about it is, you know, the whole um, probably gives you a lot of license to go into a lot of different areas creatively. But yeah. once again, I've always felt that if it's something that's working, consistency is really good. Uh, premiumization is really good and then kind of, you know, recipe improvement and quality improvements and things like that, you know, all work. Um, so, yeah, that's a beautiful brand and has a very particular positioning, you know. Yeah, and they've, they've moved away from probably, but they've come back to Yeah, it. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And it's my favourite beer actually to this day. I know a lot of people who would agree with you. <laughs> um, what were the differences then between Mars and and Diageo in terms of how they approached marketing. Um, I would think uh, Diageo Mars was um, as a business was a very 
egalitarian business was very progressive and you were given a lot of responsibility as a uh, as a brand manager and marketing manager and all that kind of thing they uh, they like to give you opportunities if you made a good business case it would um it would fly i suppose in diageo it felt like it was a much more paternalistic kind of organization right um, and there were a lot more kind of stakeholders to go through i think marketing was probably revered in in um in mars um and it was a very credible addition to you know part of the business i think in 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 diageo when i was there sales was really the right you know sales were the with the kingpins really um and marketing was sometimes seen as as a cost okay. whereas in in mars it was all seen as an investment right okay so um yeah but i think over the years the marketing team and the marketing has has actually grown in diageo and now it's it, you know it holds a fantastic place in the organization but where we were in in i think it was probably somewhere behind where Mars was in right. terms of its um, development as a function. But And then I guess some of the commercial successes as a result of marketing, you know, if you look yes, at the Smithics, helps to yeah. change that yeah. and yeah. being able to, and I guess how like important was that for you in terms of developing those, I guess the ability to have those commercial conversations with senior executives and maybe even with your team enabling them yeah. to have those Oh yeah, I mean, um, you know, the importance of your your business analyst or your financial analyst on the team uh, was really critical. But it was about asking the right questions, and you know, finding out the information. To ask you may not really need to know how to get the answer, but if you know what the questions are to pose, I think is the key thing. Um, and and that's what I would have taught the, the team. You know, it, it's you know, treat it as your own money. Does it make sense? Ask the right questions, and you get the right information. Um, and use that to build your business case. Um, yeah, and it, it, it taught you to be, um, I suppose, more robust in in your debates and arguments around the table. That's great. I love that's great advice. Like you know, you don't have to know how to get the answer, but no. being able to ask the right question that will get yeah. you there. Because there's people, you know, people have different skill sets, and you know, you're not exactly. going to necessarily be able to do the analysis, but knowing yes. how to talk to the person that will, yeah, get them involved. I, I Critical. Like, yeah, we, you know, again, I see it. At, at my company where not my company with the company I work at <laughs> I, I wish um, but, you know when you talk to you know business intelligence or marketing science you know it is about that kind of shared understanding of what we're trying to what yeah. we're trying to understand exactly because they look at the world definitely differently to I'm yes you know more on the creative side they're more on the analytical side but actually that coming together and and I also think you know having those conversations earlier you know in, yes, in a project because when you come in too late to an analyst, they're like, well, but if you'd set it up this way, we could have made exactly, this. exactly, exactly. And I often say to people, you know, when people are trying to write a document or an email or you know, a paper or whatever it is, I always say to them, you know, what is it you're actually trying to say? Just write those things down and then you can craft it later. But what is it that you're really trying to say or really trying to find out or re you know, what is yeah. it? Just say it in plain English. And then you can craft it afterwards. And I think it's the same thing around setting up analysis and so on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think if you have few key metrics, because you can't, sometimes you can be awash in data. So if you yes. have a few key metrics, and I, I have to say, 
from being a marketing person who, you know, probably as a student when I left, I wasn't that pushed on the whole numbers thing. And um, I learned the power of numbers yeah. and the power of analysis and the power of financial evaluation and so on and so on. And um, it's wonderful because I sat on the board of the Abbey Theatre and I was um, on their Audit and Risk Committee. And I remember somebody saying, to me, oh, that's great to see a marketing person on an Audit and Risk Committee. Excuse me. You know, I know how to read a PL, a balance sheet, and whatever. I can do. I know when, you know, numbers don't look right. Yeah. I mightn't be able to calculate them, yeah. as in, you know, how to make them up and how to classify them from an accounting perspective. But I certainly know a PL and, uh, you know, a business case, um, you know, and, yeah. and, and that's. That's all I need to know. And I can ask the difficult questions or the right questions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real, real skill to, you know, to have to know the, those questions. And I think it, I think A comes with time, but then also, you know, in your career, having people that are asking them and then just yeah. literally getting drawn to them, you know, yeah. like I have an amazing, um, VP of marketing. She works in, in the States, Carmen, and she just asks, phenomenal questions and I'm just like whoa <laughs> you know so I'm like right I need to know more from you and um, I, I want to move on to what you're you're doing now in a moment but you 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 did then work with Kerry Foods on some more iconic Irish brands Figurals uh Mikado oh sorry that was Jacob Proofield oh Jacob Proofield sorry yeah sorry oh, yeah, yeah. I did work for Kerry I did work for Kerry for a while on their convenience business um in fresh raised sandwiches and so on and that was at the peak of there was that was in the lead up to that was in the Celtic Tiger, yeah. and sales were doubling and tripling every year, and you know it was phenomenal. And we developed a whole food to go range, and it was really exciting. And then in August two thousand and eight, what we were one of our major consumers were what we used to call the high vis jackets. So the guys on the business yes. sites, going yeah, yeah. whatever, were buy their sandwich, their newspaper, their Mars bar, or whatever, and their can of whatever. Um, and we start to see our sales declining. And that was the early sign of the recession. Right. So uh, you were very able, very quickly able to see it um, in sales. So that was eventually sold off, I think, for a euro or something. Now, the brand, the, the business still exists. Yeah. Some ex-carry people bought it over. But um, yeah, that was at a particular, that was the, but that was my Celtic tiger, tiger job. Perfect experience, yeah. Okay, and so, and then. Then Jacob Brewfield, <laughs> yes. So I worked on another portfolio of very kind of of stable, uh, very mature brands. And I think my role was really to take um, the brands from being what we call, what consumers sometimes refer to them as granny biscuits. Right. So what consumers said to us is, oh, they're the biscuits I I eat when I go to my granny. So, you know, when, when I was growing up, you know, biscuits weren't, I sound like I'm about 100, don't I? Ah. Um, <laughs> growing up we had no shoes and um, when I was growing up we had um you know like biscuits for a big treat but like nowadays you know um it's there's so many different products varieties sweets and treats and everything so I guess the key thing is that some of those brands got forgotten and although yeah. they're much loved they got they were forgotten and um so it was about trying to reinvigorate those brands and make them contemporary and relevant and bring some innovation. So one of the products I launched when I was there was the uh, chocolate on the Mikados. Ah, okay. um, so we already had chocolate on the Kimberly. And then I said, folks, that's why don't we do chocolate on the Mikado? And that did really well. And in the first year, I think it turned over about 2 million in sales. So it was great. And Figaro had been in decline. And it was about turning that around as well. And it was about the um, Kimberly Mikado coconut creams brand and, you know, trying to, to reinvigorate that. And so all of those things were done through 
see, it's it's the same formula is understanding the consumer and understanding the competitive set, the indirect competitive set. It's about, um, you know, doing what we think would be appealing to them, whether it's in in store promotions, whether it's above the line and advertising, whether it's digital, because it would have been the emergence of, of digital yeah. around then. Um, and then it's about delivering that. And, you know, we refreshed packaging because it was seen as really dusty and old um, and things like that. Um, and so for that um, and the growth that was achieved and the increase in market share and everything, I won marketer of the year, which was a great um, accolade to receive because, you know, it's a peer um, yeah. award um, and you're judged by some very successful people. So um, that, that was fantastic doing that. Yeah. So um, a great times, you know, on some great international yeah. and, and national brands. And some great, you know, with that, some great advertising campaigns and you know I, I, yeah. I, I remember some of those Figaro ads that were out at that time I think there was the I don't know if you were there when the the he's now it's Dermot Whelan was in the ad the taste bud one and yes then, that yeah. was my campaign was yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was brilliant I mean I still remember yeah that. that was that was pretty wacky and out there we had the taste buds the um in, in best up in suits that's right doing uh <laughs> Things around town in various locations when um, what would you call it? Um, experiential marketing yeah. and so on and so on. So yeah, it was, and it was the beginning of digital. So we would have been, you know, uh, delivering a bit through that and so on. So yeah, that was that was Brilliant. one of our campaigns. Yeah, loved it, loved it. And I assume you can't tell us how the figs get into the fig rolls. No, oh no, I couldn't possibly. <laughs> I'd have to kill you. Anyone who's not Irish listeners be like, what? on earth are they, are they talking, talking about, about? exactly 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 <laughs> oh, yeah. I love a yeah. girl. um <laughs> <laughs> amazing and, and so you've gone on now to uh establish the menopause hub yes can you tell me a bit about the mission of the menopause hub yeah so i guess you know i'd spent all those years working in marketing and, and communications and branding and everything and i loved my career i did a really fantastic career loved the work and, and and the brands and so on and have always been fascinated by the consumer to be honest and and uh so i was at a kind of a crossroads as to what am i going to do next i've done some consulting and you know will i do this or do that and i happened to be going through menopause at the same time so it was in my late 40s um, and it took me by surprise. I knew nothing about it. I'd never heard the word perimenopause, which is the lead up to menopause. I um, started to get hot flushes. My period stopped, started to get hot flushes. And they were the only two things I knew about it. Right. And I would consider myself to be reasonably intelligent, reasonably well-educated, and a woman of the world. And I knew nothing about this. So I was completely blindsided. Um, and after putting up with symptoms for three years that I knew were related to menopause, and then looking back, I'd experienced symptoms for about six or seven years before that, that I never knew were related. So things like headaches and migraines. So I was sent for a brain scan. Dry eye, ended up in the eye near A&E department three times. Um, you know, dizziness, pains in my ankles, fatigue, uh, urinary tract infections. I mean, the list goes on. Right. Um, and so my quality of life was actually impacted. Um now, not that I, you know, was was really, you know, wasn't, you know, housebound, homebound, bedbound, yeah. and that. But I, my quality of life was was um, impacted. And um, at a time when I was, my children were getting older, and therefore, you know, becoming more independent, and therefore, when I was about to kind of, you know, here's my second chance to take off type thing. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, because of my experience, and then I was terrified of HRT, which is hormone replacement therapy, 
and um and I knew nothing about it, but I had something, a narrative in my head from, from the headlines years ago. So to cut a long story short, I went to see somebody, um, a medic who knew about hormones, and I started on HRT, I started on testosterone, which I didn't know women could take. And I got my old self back. So mm. I started to talk to, talk to more and more women and realized that my experience wasn't, you know, um, uh, once off, it was pretty common. And I thought, well, the services are crap aren't great excuse me yeah aren't great and um i think i could do something about this and i've been on the board of the abbey theater as well and i chaired their gender equality committee okay and i saw the power of policy in that whole area to make changes at the abbey for for gender uh equality and as well as in the wider theater community so i thought maybe i could do something in this area and wouldn't it be really interesting so i set about finding a doctor and setting up ireland's first dedicated menopause clinic and I have to say, um, ignorance is bliss. Mm. And if I knew then what I know now, <laughs> I don't know whether I'd have done it, but I, I, I just was so enthusiastic and about the, about the mission, which is to help women's lives. Um, that I just saw it as problem solving. Every obstacle I came across was just about problem solving, but it was based on a consumer insight and it was about delivering something that was practical and um, to help women. So it was the same as launching any new product or a new brand or whatever. And I did, you know, my pricing analysis. I did my consumer, you know, got my consumer insights, my pricing. And um, the name, I, I actually did research around the name because I was going to call it something else. People said, no, you know, we prefer, you know, call it what it is and whatever. Okay. So and I'm thrilled with that name, the Menopause Hub, because it does what it says on the tin. Yeah. Um, and I had lovely, fancy other brands, but, you know, you would have had to decipher what it was what about. It was. Okay. Um, and it's also helped to break down the stigma around it. So that's what I did. I opened that in um, uh, December 2019, uh, the morning after. My mother died the night before, not at 10.30. Oh, Lord. And um, I know she would have wanted me to go ahead with it, the launch. The doctor said that she would. So I did open on that the next morning because it was too late to cancel. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's gone from, from success to success to like, we're in, you know, meteoric growth is the only thing I can say, uh, expanding rapidly, more, bringing on more people, um, and so on. Yeah. Incredible. And I think I, I was going to ask you about the, um, I, I think like the marketing approach you've taken to launch the menopause and menopause hub, and there's no, reason why you wouldn't, you know, but like it's, you've, you've taken all the consumer insight, you've thought about the product, like it's all the things. It is, it is. And what I am thrilled about is the transferability of all those skills. Yeah. And I often say to people, and I'm sure an accountant would say this, you know, but I say marketing is common sense. But I suppose if you work in something so long and whatever, it becomes second nature. Yes. And it does seem like common sense. Um, and I'm sure an accountant would say, well, look, those numbers are a mathematician. It's common sense. But that's how it feels to me. And all of those skills I was able to apply. I mean, I couldn't afford any money uh, to advertise. So I set about approaching media myself. I didn't have a PR agency or anything like that. And I rang them up and I, you know, wrote my own press releases and all of that. Wow. And I got phenomenal coverage, phenomenal. And every time um, the Menopause Hub or I represented the Menopause Hub appeared in the uh, in the media, we would see a massive spike in our right. sales. Um, and, you know, as the business has grown, um, I suppose the biggest difficulty is managing the growth, right. you know, because 
we haven't got enough staff to meet the doctors to meet the demand then our premises getting too small and now we're opening a place on the north side of dublin um but um i think for me uh, the key thing, the key difference between this and any of the other brands that I've worked with is that it has a real, if you know what I mean, purpose. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that the brands don't have a real purpose, but at the end of the day, I used to say to myself, I don't want to go to my grave just having sold Mars bars and dog food <laughs> and beer, you know. So I, I have a feeling, you know, my real sense is that we are actually making a difference yeah. in women's lives. We are actually um, breaking down the stigma and the taboo um, and delivering on that purpose and that to me makes it so much easier i don't mind the long hours i don't mind the hard graft or anything like that you know i feel i'm on on, on a mission yeah uh, amazing and you, you mentioned taboo there and i was talking to uh, a friend of mine aid mclaughlin uh, about us talking today and he he said to me something really interesting i'd, I'd love to put it to you. he said if menopause was a male issue we would all be talking about it that's for sure. That is no, no, no truer word was said. And to be honest, um, if you think about it, um, menopause affects women um, and every woman will go through menopause. Um, about 80% of women will have symptoms. Um, and the other 50% of the, of the population will be impacted in some mm-hmm. way. So it is a societal issue. Um, and really what happens to women is the opposite of what happens to them in puberty. So in puberty, all this, these hormones, but in particular estrogen, rushes up through the body and and counts for all those changes from age 13 to 18 or 20 or whatever. At the other end, the exact same thing happens. The difference with puberty is that it affects males and females, and this only affects females. So as a result, it's seen as a woman's issue. Mm -hmm. And in Catholic Ireland, but actually globally, you know, you don't talk about those kind of things. Yeah. But I know that the next generations are changing. My daughter was 13 when I was going through um, through menopause. She was going through puberty. Um, and my, my children talk about periods. They don't use any code words. We used to have special, you know, my friends, the painters, Aunt Flo, all these right. code words because yeah. we weren't, you know, never say the real thing. Whereas the next generations are, are completely different. They're handling things head on um, and so on. So yes, if it was a male issue. So what now what we're doing as part of our um, menopause in the workplace, because we have a whole program on menopause in the workplace, is about educating staff, colleagues, educating managers, educating HR departments and professionals, um, and creating menopause champions in organizations. Right. And men are engaging in this conversation. Um, and they need to engage because um, what we've heard, and once again, I've conducted research um, in Ireland that was never conducted. There was no data in Ireland. So I did my own surveys on surveying monkey and so on. And 12% of um, women going through menopause gave up work because of their menopause. And 40% considered giving up work or cutting back. Wow. So if you've got women in your workforce of a particular age, you need to you know, engage in this conversation. That That's phenomenal. And because uh, when you think we... We've done a lot of work in, in kind of um, gender pay gaps, but also kind of campaigns around work needs women and how actually workforces are better Absolutely. with women in them. Like there's just so Diversity, much data and yeah. research around it. And and I think what's really kind of challenging and interesting, like not interesting in a good way, but like, you know, women when they, you know, the women that have children, when they have the children, you know, they're the ones that are taking time off work, Absolutely. right, for for uh 
what should really be parental leave, but it's maternity, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So, so there's gaps there. And then if you're saying now that then, and I think that, that holds women, women back unfairly. And thankfully, I've seen people in Indeed come back from maternity leave and getting promoted. And it's a, yeah. it's a wonderful thing, but it doesn't happen enough. And then I think if you're saying here now that there's a percentage of women that actually think about quitting or pulling back on work during, you know, menopause, like that's just frightening because then that's a huge chunks of careers that were losing this opportunity of having women in the work and workplaces are better. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. And to be honest, and I don't want this to be a male versus female sort of discussion, but at the end of the day, you know, biologically, we are designed to have hormones like fly up and down all the time um, and that we are designed to have the babies. Um, and, you know, I looked at my daughter when she was turning 13. And I was thinking, oh, my God, you know, what you have again ahead of you, you know, is monthly periods. Then can you have a baby? Will you have a baby? When will you have your baby? Will you take time off? Will you go back to work? Will you stay at home? Will you feel guilty whichever route you go? Yeah. Will your career be progressed? Um, and then you probably get into, and then you've got young children and you're working outside the home um, and you have elderly parents probably and then wham. Yeah. <laughs> you hit menopause and you're like, what? No one told me about this. So I think the whole thing is, you know, it's all about education and awareness. And if you are aware and know in advance, if you're forewarned, you're forearmed. And you can make choices um, about how you want to look after your health during this phase and beyond from a position of knowledge. And so the values of our business, of the Menopause Hub, are education, empathy and empowerment. And that's what we're all about. Um, And to my mind, you know, if you knew nothing about puberty, you'd end up taking your child to the doctor going, what the hell has happened to my child here? Mm. But the fact is we do. We prepare them, we prepare ourselves. Everyone in society knows that this is happening and we give teenagers latitude and um, we're understanding and so on. And then we know that they'll eventually pass through this phase and be, you know, become adults. So I think it's really sort of the same thing at the other end. And it's really the solution isn't, oh my God, now do I have to give a woman seven years off work? Mm. It isn't. It's actually about reasonable accommodation. So the employer, the manager, the HR director, whatever, just being able to say, what do you need to make your job so that you can do your job? And the the solution should be something that's easy enough for the organization to deliver on and easy enough for the woman to, to implement. And therefore, they're reasonable accommodations that are win-win. And it's about being able to have that conversation from the woman's perspective to be able to yeah. bring it up, but also from the male or the, the manager can be a male or female, but be feeling confident to have that that conversation rather than being embarrassed or what do I do? I don't know what to do here, you know? Yeah. Um, and look, there's lots of things. Fertility is now, you know, um, being spoken about in workplaces and um, pregnancy loss, miscarriages, surrogacy, um, all of this kind of thing. Um, and I'm afraid you know, as employers, we're going to need to make, need to make space for this if we want women in the workforce. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything, do you think, um, like going back to maybe the marketing perspective, is there anything that, you know, organisations can do for or from a marketing perspective that, that should be tackling the issue? Because again, we see it in, you know, take advertising. We see advertising yes. talking about, you know, diversity, inclusion, belonging, gender equality, all that, you know, do you think there's a place for 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 kind of menopause in advertising, and and I mean that in a in a sense of us kind of addressing it, whether it's say we've done campaigns around 
gender pay gap where we could just show visually the 16% yeah. pay inequality, right? You know, yeah. and, and there's simple ways of doing it. Do you think there's a role f- for that or is it more kind of the organizational HR? Oh, no. I, well, there's a couple of things. One is um, some, uh, some brands are now um, uh, addressing menopause. So, for example, Primark uh, Pennies has just launched a menopause range of clothing for women. Um, Boots has just come out with a, a range of um, of uh, skincare for menopausal women. Um, the Pantene and somebody else can't remember have brought out uh, menopause shampoos and so on. Now, whether or which these all deliver and whatever, yeah. um, I don't know how much they can help you with their symptoms. But if they can, even if they can't, they're getting this conversation out yeah. there and they're normalizing it, which I think is fantastic. I would love to see more general awareness around mm. it. I think the problem is, and particularly because I'm speaking to people in the States, is that youth is seen as, um, youth is our currency, really. And so once a woman, you know, gets older, you know, the reason I didn't come out and tell people I was menopausal when I was, was because I didn't want them to think I was old in the workplace, mm. that I was old, that I was past it, that I was a crazy lady or any of those kind of things. And a woman with grey hair is seen as, as, as old. A man with grey hair is seen as wise. Yeah. And this is societal, you know, so we really do value youth. And we, and an older woman isn't as valued. And now we're, you know, it's, it's been an issue in, 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 um, in film and theatre and all of that. Um, and modelling and all of those kind of things. But you can see people trying to bring it in. So I guess the thing is, it's about featuring, you know, does it always have to be the young, you know, uh, people that you feature in your advertising? Um, is there a role to play on, um, you know, sort of a general awareness campaign around it? Um, I think, um, and I think marketing is tackling it from a, a brand and product perspective as well, which is great. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. I, I think that's really interesting to see where it's coming up. And, and even by those, some of those brands doing things around, as you say, it's may not solve yeah. the issue, but it's, it's, it's highlighting it. It's, yes bringing it to the fore and then yeah. people have to have conversations around it. Um, I, we're almost at time. I can't believe it already. Um, I had a, my, my previous guest and um, I asked her if she had a, a question for my next guest. We didn't know who it was going to be, but it's you. What would it be? Um, and so her question, uh, it's Tara Sullivan. Um, okay. And her question was, what company would you have loved to work for as a marketing lead as they started? At the time, I would have loved to have worked for um, East Digital. Okay, yeah. Um, now, you know, when I look back all the... But anyway, um, I would have loved to have worked there. And the reason being is that um, at the time when I came back from Sweden, um, it was in the late 90s, um, mobile phone technology was just taking off and, you know, uh, telephone and all of that. So I think I would have loved to have worked there. I mean, everyone's probably going to say Apple, you know, but I don't know, would I really? Um, but definitely, I think somewhere like that would have been, you know, where, where you're at the, the cutting edge of yeah. something new that's emerging that people don't really know much about and you're trying to figure your way out through it. And I, as I said, I did apply to an and get a job, but there you go. Um, so yeah, um, so something in something like that, I think would be... Would be yeah, because I was, I mean... So it, it was also new, right? I remember getting the, I actually remember a friend of mine in college and she was the first person I knew that had one of the pay-as-you-go phones. And with yeah. it, 
there was a, a, a card that had strips of paper where you wrote your phone number on so you could hand yeah you could hand the phone number to your friends. I mean, when you like, it's just mad, right? Like where now it's like airdrop your number or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. Um, and so to put, not to put you on the spot, but if yeah. is there well, a, question, I have a question, do you? Great. What's yeah. your question for my next guest? Um, what would you like your marketing legacy to be? Love it. Love Has it. someone asked that before? No, 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 I love it. That's brilliant. Um, Loretta, thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat to me today. It's It's been just phenomenal. Uh, I mean, as I said, we've talked so much about the amazing work that you've done and been involved with and like such amazing, amazing brands. And then what you're doing now is just um, just incredible. Taking all the stuff that you know about kind of consumer insight behavior and really making such an impact. Um, so thank you so much for, for spending the time with me today. Thank you so much for having me as your guest. I had never met Loretta before this podcast and there is something about Loretta that made me feel like we had known each other for years. She's disarmingly charming and honest. She's achieved so much in her career and I say that with such admiration and respect. When Loretta talked about having to essentially kill a brand when she and her team had tried all they could to revive it, that is more than just being a good marketer. I won't lie, I was a little apprehensive about covering the topic of menopause, and maybe that comes across. But Loretta is doing what she set out to achieve and making it an accessible topic, nothing to be ashamed of or bashful of. And I would definitely encourage you to check out her menopause-friendly workplaces program on the menopausehub.ie. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Marketing. If you did enjoy it, please do share and add comments with your feedback and follow us on Twitter at that's underscore marketing. And if you or someone you know would be a great guest for the podcast, get in touch. I'll add the email address to the show description. Finally, thanks to Michael Cullen and marketing.e for helping set this interview up. For me, Conor Pern, until the next episode, take care.